All right. Well, welcome back to Harry Potter talk or whatever this is that we're going to be calling it. Hey, Miss Sarah Miller. Hey, Mr. Wesley Chance. Hi. And can we all hear each other now? We had a little technical difficulty on the, the first attempt. Sounds good. I can good, hear good. We don't want to, we're, we're, we're like Ron after he breaks his, uh, his wand on the Whomping Willow and attempts to cast spells and ends up cursing himself and nothing working quite right. Poor, poor Ron. And uh, so, oh man, I have to start this, uh, this podcast off on sort of a frustrating note. So even though we start a little late due to me being late on my lecturing, I had a whole 20 minute segment on, on, on chapter five. And, uh, just like the glass for the boa constrictor, it just vanished on anchor. I watched it upload for like 10 minutes and then anchor froze and then it disappeared forever. Oh man. So sorry. Bummer. Yeah. Well, so, uh, one thing I've, I've never experienced with, um, with, um, anchor when I'm actually recording with somebody else though, is I've never lost any of the segments with you, Sarah, or with Wes, or with both of you, or with Daniel Babcock. And so, well, I have a lot more faith in this working out. So I guess where we left off last time is, uh, uh, what, chapter chapter three, right? And so yeah. so we uh, there was a big boom at the door, and so we're getting into <laughs> chapters four and five, and we're meeting uh, Rubius Hagrid, and um and uh seeing the dursleys get cowed and then learning all about the magical world and harry's true parents and seeing a wizarding bank with goblins and possibly a dragon learning mm -hmm. that there are cold and ruthless dudley like individuals inside of inside of the wizarding world too and that there are wands and creepy wand makers who give us piercing and sharp looks and that our wands are all totally unique and so what did y'all want to talk about today? I mean, I, I think I think definitely Gringotts and um, and the wands are the most interesting parts to me. But uh, what were y'all thinking? Wes, um, I I had wanted to talk about Hagrid uh, to start out. I think he's you know really, he's a really interesting character. We've we briefly met him back in the introductory chapter, um, and we saw a little bit of this um i don't know if it's a prejudice or if it's grounded in some previous experience where mcgonagall kind of asks dumbledore you know is he really the best person for this job this very very important job um are you sure about this right and dumbledore seems seems to trust hagrid where whereas other people um like that snooty boy in the uh, robe store just uh have, have some have some some strong negative opinions towards him so i was, I was curious to look at hagrid uh a little bit Yeah, I, I too find him a really uh, perplexing character. He doesn't, um, perplexing might be the wrong word, but intriguing. Uh, he doesn't really seem to fit in either world. Um, you know, in the, in the muggle world, he takes up a ridiculous amount of space and everybody looks at him funny. And, um, and he, in his own world, he seems to be an outsider as well, mm -hmm. um, just by virtue of his size, of course, but also maybe by virtue of the of like his unkemptness or his uneducated status. Uh, I'm not entirely certain that we know just why 
Professor McGonagall doesn't trust him or has questions. Um, I, I mean, we later learn a lot more about him, but but uh, but he seems um, one of one of those characters who doesn't fit in either place, which maybe makes him a little bit like Harry, um, at least Harry right now. Um, so I find him interesting. I think the way he talks is interesting. Um, she doesn't, she doesn't have to, um, use kind of like the natural style, like the Mark Twain, uh, style of writing when she, when she's writing how anybody else speaks, she doesn't make it clear that they are uneducated or, um, that they have an accent, but she does with, with Hagrid, which I think is interesting. Yeah, something something about him that I wanted to consider is I consider him something of a hermetic or mercurial spirit, like a psychopomp, a sender between the worlds. He he himself goes between worlds on a flying motorcycle, which is itself a representation of two worlds, right? Like we discussed, like science and magic mm-hmm. wedded together, and terrestrial and celestial wedded together. And uh, he himself is two natures wedded together, giant and human, we will find out. And so he is also literally an outcast in that he was expelled from Hogwarts and, and yet still exists within and without in sort of a limbo space in a cottage right outside, just inside the grounds, right on the edge of the Forbidden Forest. And so he, like sort of an Enkidu figure from Gilgamesh, seems like sort of a the savage man, uh, or the the liminal space between uh, uh, nature and culture. He's like Odysseus when Odysseus is about to sleep under the two olive bushes, one savage, or or rather one uncultivated uh, and one cultivated on the island mm. of Scoria. And so I think it's interesting that he he comes about first to deposit Harry in the Muggle world from the magical world or a place of death to now a place of life too. And now comes to the, the, the muggle world in order to take Harry now to the magical world. And so it's like he introduces Harry into the next stages of his life. And uh, uh, sort of like Hermes, Hermes actually literally does that for Odysseus in uh, the Odyssey. He shows up after Odysseus has been trapped for seven years on Calypso's island, commands her to allow him to leave. I, I'm not sure if you um, if you like looked it up um, but I, I looked up just because um, Alex on one of your um, previous lectures you talked about like what you thought the word Potter meant I definitely think like the names of the Dursleys are you know obviously so um, common and kind of almost cacophonous um, but uh, Hagrid part of his name is uh comes according to this like what harry potter lexicon website or whatever so who knows how legitimate it is but um this person says it, it part of it is partially derived from the old english for a word um for someone who straddles uh straddles the hedge uh-huh. um or or um the the hedge is a boundary between the village and the forest um that like this this word that part of his name comes from, um, you know, this old English root um, is is for a, a figure. I think a feminine figure, but 
um, like a who would have a foot, yeah, who would have a foot in, in both worlds. Um, you know, it might eventually evolve to also be related to which, um, of course. you know, because certainly um, those women were seen as having access to information that was not proper to, um, you know, humans, though, maybe they were just really unruly and smart women, who knows, but um uh, <laughs> I just thought that well, was that, funny. You know, um, that's interesting that's... because just uh, even further evidence that point, when we meet prefer- Professor Quirrell, it is Hagrid himself who says that the reason that Quirrell now stammers, though he has a brilliant mind, is because he took a year to get experience in the field, ran into vampires, and a hag. He got messed up by a hag. And interesting about Quirrell is that he is himself now possessed of a dark thought or is now housing the disembodied Mm -hmm. uh, head, body, soul thing, or remnant of a soul of Voldemort. So he himself is like a straddling an edge. He's like a figure of Janus at this figure, like January, like the door god of the Romans. And so so that's interesting that the hag, like Hagrid, would be a figure straddling um, uh, that which is uh, natural and cultural because Quirrell is sort of, I don't know whether it's good and evil, right now or what it is but he he is divided at the very least um into in some way or another but yeah what were you thinking wes uh yeah i was just kind of interested in the way that um hagrid uh shouts down the dursleys and um you know harry harry is somehow like apologetic for being the uh the reason for this big fight between them um and Hagrid sort of emphasizes to Harry that he has nothing to apologize about, that he's the one who's been um, done wrong by this whole time, you know, and uh, then, and then there's like this, this, this exchange where, whereby Harry now has to keep a secret for Hagrid though. Right. So now Harry's going to not tell anyone that Hagrid's using magic when he's not supposed to, right. He, he's um, he's in cahoots with him now. Um, so they've, they've got this very close knit friendship kind of immediately. That's uh got this this very important little little uh secret at the heart of it this this trust which seems like the kind of trust that Dumbledore has for Hagrid you know he's um he's expelled and yet he's kept on as gamekeeper and keeper of the keys and trusted with these very important jobs so that's that's interesting that almost makes me uh think as if like there's like an Adam and Eve connection there at least in the Miltonian sense and that uh sharing a transgression together creates a great trust between mm-hmm. individuals where whereas like say if you give somebody the capacity to hold power over you freely I mean, that's like the ultimate gesture of friendship you're basically like saying i'm not going to play this game if you wanted to out me or or injure me in some way you could i freely acknowledge that and so in making that acknowledgement that establishes the basis for friendship because it's it establishes an equality in that we're not going to compete against each other to be, uh, I, don't, I don't know, more righteous or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we're not going to compete on that plane where I attempt to destroy you and you destroy me, but rather we're going to cooperate. Um, I like that idea. Yeah, and uh, Hagrid does do that a few times, right? He, he shoots uh, the, the tail onto, uh, onto Dudley, uh, revealing his inner nature, he uh, he lets the oars do the rowing for him back to the back to the shore. Um, mm-hmm. And 
so he and he also sort of kind of brings up even more than he should uh, uh, for uh, uh, Vault 713. I'm not even exactly sure why it is that Harry is allowed to be on the same card as he is when he goes down there and to look into the vault itself if it ha- has you know the greatest secret possible there. I suppose there might be a connection between what is the most valuable thing in the wizarding world, the new young wizard, the figure of the hero Harry, or the or the philosopher's stone. Two things that have been ignored and hidden away for about ten years, as Grim Hook says, because philosopher's stones are hidden, mm-hmm. or the or seven thirteen is only uh, checked on every ten years. And so I, I, I didn't even mean to go down that rabbit hole, but that's very interesting that. Uh, the Philosopher's Stone and Harry seem to be very much connected uh, in that in, in that respect. Uh, and they're, they're both things which can transform and are being transformed at this very moment. That's, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's almost like Hagrid wants Harry there um, to keep him safe in a way, right? Hagrid seems like very scared of the, of the, <laughs> of the bank and um, Harry's still like kind of over the moon about being a wizard, so everything's yeah. exciting even though it's dangerous. So it's almost like Hagrid's got him there as a as a security blanket in this case. So it's funny. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it is interesting that when Hagrid does experience some uh, increase in social capital, wherever he goes with Harry, because now Harry Harry goes from being that kid who gets made fun of because he has, you know, shapeless clothes on and broken glasses and is getting beaten up and ignored by his family um, to wherever he goes. You know, he meets the stateless diggle. He meets the head of the leaky cauldron these people look at him and they say oh my gosh harry potter and they treat him with such deference it would be like an orphan's dream essentially or like any kid's dream to all of a sudden be for seemingly no reason at all treated with deference uh justin bieber as it were (laughs) (laughs) and um yeah for no talent whatsoever that you have of yourself (laughs) but um i'm I'm, i wouldn't know i haven't heard him so uh and uh, so uh (laughs) Uh, I'm forgetting my point making fun of people like I usually do. Why don't you go on, Wes? I'm sorry. Uh, no, I mean, uh, we can we can go down into Gringotts. It sounded like you had things about that that you were interested in looking at. Um, I, I'm kind of I'm kind of more interested, I guess, in just the whole general uh, transition into into this this magical world of of which Gringotts is a pretty interesting example. But I think there's there's a lot there um, going along with yeah the Leaky Cauldron and and this new identity that Harry takes on um, in, in Diagon Alley, which is a cool, just a cool place. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I was thinking about what Diagon Alley might mean, and I, I think Diag- Diagon, like the diagonal. So when the Pythagoreans figured out that the existence of the diagonal proved the existence of irrational numbers, it supposedly sort of shattered their belief in a rational universe. And so the idea of a diagonal, which does actually give you can give you an irrational number, or at least like a mixed number, uh, not a whole mm-hmm. number when you're measuring it, which can mess, mess you up in the first stages of mathematics, um, that it's sort of a figure of the irrational. In fact, uh, Socrates uses that as a training device in the Mino, right? He mm-hmm. says, okay, well, now take the diagonal. Oh, what do you think this is? And then he sh- shows the slave that he's wrong. He's wrong. And so it's as if it is confrontation with the irrational that expands our domain of consciousness that is exactly what's happening with Harry here. He's now experiencing something totally new and anomalous and 
taking on a totally new identity as he learns more and more about it. Which made me just think that Diagon Alley, as the place where all magical things are sold, uh, represents the irrational aspects of life. And that Mm -hmm. which truly has value in life. And that uh, what is magical, or that which is magical is precisely which that which you do not, you can, or is precisely that which you cannot fully explain or know or understand. It's the spark at the tip of the wand. Um, right, right. Even the wand maker doesn't seem to know exactly why certain wand match up with certain people. Um, but he's delighted by the chance to uh, try on all these wands with Harry. Right. Um, yeah, it seems like there's something very uh, in inarticulable about uh, you know the the combination of things that makes up the magical world. Like we saw before, right? Hagrid is expelled. He has his wand broken. And yet he can still do magic as long as no one tells on him. Um, and that's because of this kind of personal connection that he has to, to magic, to Dumbledore, um, to Harry, right? So it seems like these kind of, these, these trust uh, relationships, these personal relationships are, have an element of irrationality about them, but that that is like essential to them actually working, right? The magic actually going, going like it's supposed to go. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's, it bears thinking about which, which is why I think it's interesting that they're there to buy school supplies they're not there like on a you know just on a like oh let's go learn about what this world is like like um they're both prepare I mean Harry's preparing to enter and to become a student of this thing like to to study this thing that is even to the to the smartest or the um the most uh, well-known or even to the most powerful people in this world, there's, there remains something um, ineffable. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that, that education seems to be the heart of, of the activity, at least that Harry embarks on um, in this, in this place of, of uh, commerce, you know, he's buying school supplies. He, they go to a bookstore um, there's all these titles of cool sounding books. He seems to be naturally intrigued by, um, uh, the magic relating to, um, friends and enemies or, um, dueling, um, which, uh, is an interesting, like, detail that I think foreshadows some of his future skills, but, um, you know, everything is for a purpose of study. So what does that mean for, you know, what kind of learning happens in this world if if the ultimate end or the ultimate thing that binds the whole world together is something that there's never something to, there's never an end to the learning, I suppose. I just think that's interesting. Seems so, I, I, and the, the moment where I really felt like that was um, most oddly funny to me was like when they're in um uh they're in the bowels of the bank and I don't know if you guys ever had this experience when you were like in fifth grade geology class where you learn like the difference between a stalactite and a stalagmite and and I remember exactly what the difference is and it sounds like kids in Britain learn it the exact same way as we do in America that you know, the one with the G is for the ground and the one with the C is for the ceiling. Obviously, Hagrid doesn't get it right, but like... Spelled um, different. It, yeah, uh, but like, uh, um, 
that to me is like, was like a, that's like not real learning. Like what's the, that's, that's, um, that's memorizing, memorizing definitions, but yeah, it's, it's like, you know, we're all teachers. It's the lowest level of Bloom's taxonomy. It's like, uh, whereas it seems like the learning that they're going to have to embark on is extremely experiential and, um, uh, you're going to be studying under professors who are masters of a subject. But if even Ollivander, you know, this ancient wand maker, if, if, even if to him there's something that he could still learn or be uh, interested in or um, find curious or in, um, like awe-inspiring, I don't know. It, it's a different kind of education than I think um, – I think a lot of people get to experience in the primary world. Um, anyway, that's what I thought was cool about this chapter. Yeah. Well, so Ollivander, I just, so, and just one thing is, Wes, was, was Sarah cutting out at all for you during that? I was, I was experiencing a little of that. I just want to make sure it was on my end and not on the recording's part. Yeah, I... I have had some audio issues throughout this, so um, I, I got the gist of it, but there was definitely um, some cutting cutting out there, and and uh, some some of it was a little a little hard to follow, though. Yeah, yeah. So Sarah, you're just uh, it, it was like cutting out every like ten words or so, just like go up, and then you would come back down, and so. Uh, that that's the only reason I didn't immediately engage with your thought because I was just kind of putting it together oh. and I just I wanted to make sure, I just wanted to see what was happening there. Sorry no, no, about no, that. It's totally fine. It's uh we're you know you know we are all the Ron we're... Weasley with uh, the broken wand while while subject to this technology which has also given us the capacity to do this all at once. And so yeah, I, I don't know. I honestly I don't know how to I don't know how to fix it. Uh, and, I mean, I have no. I'm it's on... fun. We are ourselves a leaky cauldron. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Ollivander, I kind of want to talk about those wands a little bit. So, I, I wish I'd had time to do research on the sorts of like tree that each of them were. Mm. But, but let me see. I, I do have it here. So, we, we get insight into Harry's wand, his mom's wand, his dad's wand, Hagrid's wand, and Voldemort's wand. And so, his mom's wand is 10 and a half inches. Long, swishy, made of willow, good for charming. His dad, 11 inches, a little more power, transfiguration, and mahogany. Uh, Voldemort's, 13 and a half inches, made of yew, with a phoenix feather on the inside. Harry, uh, 11 inches long, uh, made of holly and phoenix feather, which is a weird combination. And it's supple and uh, nice, so I guess well-balanced. Um, and... Uh, Hagrid, of course, has the 16-inch, though, broken in half, so effectively 8 inches, which is an interesting comment on his, on his like, sort of education, right? Because just as he has, like, sort of half an education, three out of the seven years, he has half a wand. And so mm -hmm. perhaps he had tremendous potential, but uh, in some way or other didn't live up to it. Or I, I'll have to think more about him because he does seem to be that figure of – he is very like in Kidu to me. Very like the Beast Man, uh, and mm -hmm. not to keep returning to him. But um, something interesting about, uh, I, I was just looking at the sort of stats on James and Lily's wand. So James has a stronger wand than Lily, also a longer wand. and he, His is good at transfiguration, which you might consider 
abstract manipulation of space in the world, sort of like what you can imagine in your head and then you transform something into that in the world. So it's, a, it's like abstract spatial reasoning, I would say. Um, and, then, and then her wand is good at charming and charming is so, so richly connected with attraction. And just something interesting that um, Milton says about the, the differences between the, the sexes is he says that Eve was made for beauty. She had even longer hair than Adam. And that in fact, she was very much proud of this fact and found Adam rather wanting after looking at herself in her reflection for the first <laughs> time. And uh, that Adam was made for strength and, and um, logos or logical thinking, sort of like abstract spatial reasoning. Or, um, and so I thought that was sort of interesting to find that lurking in here, even in talking about the difference in wands or perhaps personalities um, or, or like sort of inanimate uh, in the inanimate representations of a wizard's personality. I thought that was interesting to find lurking here. Not only that notion, the differences between uh, the sexes, but also um, that sort of fantastic trope. And we've been talking a little bit about fantastic tropes of that thing, which is not you, which represents you sort of like in uh, um, the Philip Pullman series, the golden compass series, how one has one's daemon or soul outside of oneself. Uh, mm -hmm. Here you have this, and sort of like this, there's this anime show called Bleach where you have a sword which has a soul, like the idea of the samurai. But here, here you have a wand which has some special magical substance on the inside, either a dragon heart string or a unicorn horn piece or a phoenix tail. And mm -hmm. it somehow chooses you. So it has some sort of consciousness too. So it is, mm -hmm. it is. It is like a part of you that has been outside of you your whole life or uh, I'm, how do y'all interpret that? Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's a, it seems like a, a traditional kind of um, idea that the world is full of, of kind of personality, uh, you know, soul or whatever you want to call it. And, and that the wand is some kind of, um, well, it's measured, right? And so yes. there's this element of logic to it where you can, that seems like one of the three important things about the wand is how long it is. Mm. And then the other two, um, you have the natural world in the form of the wood, which which is important. But then you also have it in the form of this magical beast or this piece of it, right? Oh, wow. That, Very good, Wes. So, so you get this kind of, um, you get this kind of trinity going where, where you've got the measurement, you've got the material, and you have that sort of indwelling uh, anim animated, you know, soul piece of it. And and somehow all those three things together, yeah, uh, represent the wizard who uses it. But, but even more than that, they um, they sort of they, they show the, the person something that they didn't know about themselves until that moment. And and in that sense, I think it is it's significant that like like Sarah was saying, like this whole thing is about education, and the the sort of the truth of the education is is implied that that it has to do with self discovery, right? And and like and that that is like fused with knowing something about the nature of of life uh, as a as a kind of animating force throughout throughout the cosmos or something like that so it's it's really interesting i think the most interesting thing about the the wands though is that we discover that harry's wand um the feather in it is the is the twin the brother right you got this kind of 
um, connection with with Voldemort himself. So, and so that's something that's interesting about that I wanted to mention, and I want to loop you back in, Sarah. And I didn't mean to shut you down yeah. by mentioning the the audio thing. So, you know, jump, no, that's okay. Jump in as much, yeah. So don't even worry about that. But um, but so the idea that so something about Voldemort's wand is it is tremendously long. It's thirteen and a half inches long, two and a half inches longer than Harry's. And the length mm -hmm. of a wand seems to indicate some measure of its power as mm -hmm. just like a tentative hypothesis. And so something said about Voldemort is that he did great things, terrible things, but great ones uh, mm -hmm. like Ta Dana or whatever in the Greek. And, um, and uh, I forget the exact expression, like the many horrors. Um, but um, it's, it seems to be, partly because he over-focused on power, sort of like Ganon or Ganondorf from the Zelda series who receives the part of the Triforce, which is power, not wisdom or courage. Um, and is that even though he was as a singular figure tremendously powerful, he didn't hit every aspect of life. So Harry has an 11-inch wand, and he's going to be expected to stand against this figure. And even though he's not going to be personally as powerful, Perhaps he, he in sort of like the heroic fashion that we see in, say, like superhero movies when they all join to get together like the Avengers or, or in this uh, crazy Infinity War recently, perhaps one adds best to one's own, own power through what you were saying earlier, the irrational connection of trust with others. Mm -hmm. So Harry will not have himself solely unilaterally more power and the figure of darkness, Voldemort, but will have access to the greatest power, which is that irrational trust that connects people together. Um, perhaps there's some some idea that the greatest power is not power at all, but connection um, or unity produced between individuals. Um, and I, I feel like I do see that distinction between their two wands, uh, not to mention the fact that uh, Harry's is also nice and supple. It seems to be balanced. <laughs> it's a balanced wand. Yeah. Rather than, yeah. I was going to, I don't know. Can you, can you yes. guys hear me? Yeah. Um, I was yeah. going to say, first of all, Wes, I really liked that idea that the three things like the, that idea of the three that we get to know about each of these ones. I think it's interesting that, um, you know, for most of them, until we learn that Harry's wand is a twin of, Voldemort's we don't know what the magical core is of the other ones yeah. um but we are told that like the options are unicorn hairs phoenix tail feathers and heartstrings of dragons and while all three of those um animals are not found in the primary world I think most readers would know I mean even when I was 11 I knew what a unicorn and a dragon was but I didn't know what a phoenix was. I'm sure I didn't. Um, and probably. Um, but I, I mean, obviously, the fact that the two of them share a phoenix feather seems to be significant because of the three magical monsters, the phoenix is the only one that has kind of like this regenerative. Yeah. Um, like uh, this, this like odd relationship to uh, to its own life and death. Um, but to to me, I think I like that idea, Wes, that that like part of education in this world is like coming to know oneself um, mm -hmm. and maybe know why that wand picked you or what your relationship is to this 
object that helps you, this object that, that really becomes your, um, your lens in a way, um, or your way of relating to the, to the world around you. Um, so when he takes the one that ends up choosing him, um, he felt a sudden warmth in his fingers, yeah. it says, and it, it releases this, these red and gold sparks, like a firework throwing dancing spots of light onto the walls, which to me is like a foreshadowing of his placement in Gryffindor because of the yeah. colors. But um, that idea of finding um, oneself in like these feelings of warmth um, reminds me a lot of uh, like Ignatian discernment and how do you come to know um, who you are? It's through examining where you felt consolation and where you felt desolation. Um, I, I also, I got to point out yesterday was, or not yesterday, Thursday was the feast day of Aloysius Gonzaga. <laughs> and so I was at school and I was thinking, you know, other feast days and Harry Potter and St. Ignatius have the same um, day, like Harry Potter's birthday and Ignatius's feast day are the same, which like Ignatian spirituality puts like a, he a heavy emphasis on feeling, on imagination and emotion. So um, discerning the, the movements of one's own emotions and imaginative prayer um, by imagining yourself in these biblical scenes. I just, I, I have now that I think given that I like worked in that field and then, um, you know, also grew up in that kind of education, it's hard for me not to, not to see those overlaps, but um, because, because they are, they really are both about coming to understand oneself, um, and, uh, and like, uh, ones, as Alex said, one's own relationship to nature and other people in one's orbit, um, which I think is interesting. Yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, Ignatian connection, if I caught that right, you're saying it's, his birthday is the feast day for, for Ignatius. Yeah. Okay. All right. That yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. I don't. It. Uh, we do get a little bit sort of about like time brought up here, where, where we get the we get oh. the schedule. Um, we get the schedule for the school year starting on September first. Uh, where you know, or at least that's the day he has to take the train, right? So, so we we're, we're sort of clued into, yeah. On the one hand, Harry Potter's birthday is an important date, uh, and now we know that. Uh, the school year is going to kind of, um, if we didn't already, right, we know that that's going to kind of like structure the rest of the book. But I was sort of, mm -hmm. I was like struck by how long it takes us to get to Hogwarts. Like I had forgotten that even the first book, 100 pages in before you even get to Hogwarts. Um, and I think that that length only gets longer with each of the other books, if I remember right. So uh, it's, it's an interesting like um, kind of, kind of bridge uh, that, that Hagrid forms here and Diagon Alley forms and kind of getting all the, the magical accoutrements ready, right? But it's like this long buildup till, till we actually get to see, you know, what, what, is, what is this book actually about? Like, <laughs> what is going to happen, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, it, she spends an awful lot of time, like, drawing you into the world and aligning you with the characters in, in these interesting ways. Um, yeah, I just I found it plot wise kind of kind of interesting yeah it's like we start in an inner mezzo uh rather than simply in media race in the middle of things but we do start in the middle of things usually in sort of the middle of the summer with the other texts uh which is it, it always gives us something to look forward to which is interesting 
Yeah, we're looking forward to going back to school, uh, at least in this magical world. <laughs> Something interesting I just noticed yeah. because of both of you, though, is that um, Harry's birthday, 731, is, um, is all the same numbers as what is located within the Gringotts dungeon of se- uh, located in a Vault 713. Mm. Uh, suggesting potentially that what's what he is going down there to get is sort of like what Aladdin goes down in the Cave of Wonders to get, which is that shabby-looking thing of little worth, which is the alchemist stone, which will transform his life, of course. Um, um, something else just tangentially sort of related was was the idea of um um uh, we were talking about connection and we're talking about the magical beasts that give their their um their essences to the wands Mm. freely i think seems to be the idea that um oh i i don't know that the text necessarily and well it does indicate that because the phoenix chose to give two of its feathers um and so there's a connection between the soul of the wand and the soul of the person suggesting that, you know, like a soul of a human is something as fantastic as like a phoenix or a dragon or a mythical creature, which mm. made me think, which, and this is, this is just a tangent, but when we first met Professor Coral, what he said he was looking for, what brought him to Diagon Valley, or Alley, excuse me, was, um, was searching for a book on vampires. And so later in the text, we know that he, like a vampire, is going to try and suck the blood of a unicorn and uh, mm-hmm. stay, stay alive. And so there seems to be, but in, with a cursed life. And so, I, and I'm just putting the, together the thought here now, there seems to be some, I, I don't know, an explosion of connections, but, uh, but uh, some connection between the idea of whether one receives the blessing from the magical creature to use it or whether one does not and that that might determine whether the the gift is a cursing or a blessing um i don't know i was just thinking about that (laughs) yeah no it's uh it's i mean i think the most ambiguous um characters here are the goblins right like are they good are they are they evil they're they're sort of nasty looking and uh greedy and all that but they also um <laughs> right and uh, uh but but then again you know uh olivander's like you mentioned is pretty creepy too so so there's something there's something ambiguous or ambivalent or, or something with with the nature of magic here again where we're seeing that um it's either it's either unclear whether it's good or evil or, or it might even just be something other than good and evil. You know, it's, it's like uh, outside of those uh, normal conventional uh, sort of, sort of definitions entirely. Uh, I wanted to read the, the, the yes. bank um, motto because <laughs> I think it's great uh, since we're talking about, you know, going through archways and, and bridges and, you know, transitioning into the, the magical world. So here's what it says on the doors. Uh, silver this time with words engraved upon them enter stranger but take heed of what awaits the sin of greed for those who take but do not earn must pay most dearly in their turn so if you seek beneath our floors a treasure that was never yours thief you have been warned beware of finding more than treasure there uh, i i find it very interesting that we get the word sin there right the sin of greed uh speaking about sort of the interesting kind of parallels 
the magical world and the religious world or something like that, you know, souls and magical beings or supernatural beings. Um, but also uh, the, the admonitory tone of the whole thing is, is sort of humorous and, and that playfulness that runs throughout is part of what me, make, makes me wonder, sorry, makes me wonder like, you know, how, how much is this a, a thing about good and evil and how much is it about something else entirely, like uh, sort of awe or, or numinousness about the world, which is transcending kinds of definitions. What's interesting with Gringotts as a bank or that which stores the accumulated wealth or substance of those who have lived before and with wealth or treasure itself being seen as a cultural artifact produced through the efforts of others. So it's, it's a place of accumulation of culture and it's maintained by these sort of soulless, not, not soulless, but like sort of lifeless functionary bureaucrats called goblins who, who who seem to know they're sort of like all misers or cynics they seem to know the price of everything but not necessarily the value of anything they're like cogs uh, in this workplace and what's interesting is that they as also symbols of sort of uh lifeless tradition um they they what hmm, how to put this exactly they um Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm losing it. Well, you go down, let's see, they maintain, they maintain your wealth. You go down there, they're figures of tradition. Um, I'm sorry, I lost exactly what I was I was going to say, and I'll, I'll think of it in a second, always with those terrible branches. I'm sorry so much. No, I was, I think, um, I'm just, I'll, I'll come back to the idea, and I, I, I don't want to be redundant, but um, maybe because, um, I, I don't know if maybe I got cut off, um, in the, in the, uh, recording, but, um, I think it's interesting, Wes, what you say about how long it takes to get to the school, because it really, to me, like the fact that they go to a bank first. And as you said, Alex, that's like, that's the first thing that they do, obviously, cause you need money to buy anything. You know, it says much of a magical world as this is, it's still, a world based on, you know, economies and, you know, commerce and the buying and selling of things. But, um, like, uh, it's a place to store knowledge or it's, sorry, it's a place to store money, but, um, Hogwarts is a kind of bank, which we'll find. Um, it's just, a, it's wealth is measured in other things. Um, and if what he finds at the, in the bowels of Gringotts is this grubby little package wrapped in brown paper, um, and as you were saying, Alex, that's, that's kind of maybe, uh, tied to Harry himself. Like what if, what if there's something like alchemical about the process of, of education? Um, yes. uh, you know, like that there's, um, except alchemy to me, I always thought of it as like this, a trick, you know, hmm. like a, like a gimmick, yes. like a con, um, where, whereas, um, transforming, uh, that which doesn't know into something that does know, that doesn't seem like a con to me. I mean, it certainly, if it, if it is, then all three of us are in the wrong job, but like, um, you know, um, I, I'm not, I'm not promising somebody I can, um, you know, get them into Harvard. I'm, you know, that's not what we do as teachers either. That would be the con, right? Um, yeah. And yeah. I, I guess I, I really do think like um, I mean, everything is sort of centered around education. Like my, one scene that I think we're, we haven't yet talked about is like when 
when they're um, when Harry is alone um, in the robe shop and he is uh, he encounters this boy and uh, as Wes noted this 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 kind of like yucky boy who we don't get his name like he's he's yucky and we don't even know that he who he is that his name is a gross name like it it just has these like I don't know these tints of of danger and ill will once we do find his name but like even from just his behavior though the two boys are wearing the same thing they're reduced to um kind of looking similar um you can still see that um in their in their similarities wearing the same black cloak they're like what's at its core is different like he seemed he's just his core is rotten um and like the the cosmetics of things are not important but i i to me, I think that that's sort of related to what, what education can do with the core of things. Um, it makes me wonder if, if somebody like Draco is um, redeemable. Um, well, and something, just, yeah, something about your point on uh, alchemy is that Dante locates the alchemists amongst the falsifiers down right. very deep. They're liars. In the, yeah, in the eighth circle of... Um, in the eighth circle or the eighth circle and I believe even the eighth bulge or pocket of the, um, uh, the inferno. But something interesting about um, Alchemist, which connects to the, the quote on the Gringotts second double doors is, is that one thing it tends to point to is the existence, not only of good, but of bad. So if one's focusing on all the gold down in the underworld and in an education, one should also be prepared to understand that there's, there may well be a dragon or that in order to get the gold, mm-hmm. one might have to put one's hand in the feces, as it were. That there's, there's an, like Wes was suggesting with both magic or, or, or reality itself, there seems to be an underlying, uh, there seems to be a light and a dark aspect. There seems to be a good side of the force and a bad side. There seems to be um, an entirety to it. That, um, that an environment has. That if there is going to be gold, mm. it is going to be protected by something that understands the value of it and does not want to part with it. And that when you go, and I think this is emphasized also by the cover to the American edition to the book, you find a Cerberus-like fluffy the three-headed dog in the bowels of the castle to the right. Um, that um, the alchemical idea and perhaps the educational idea is that true learning is not only learning about all the good things that have happened, but all the bad things too, of learning mm-hmm. not only the good aspects of human nature, but the truly evil and malevolent ones. And that, that gives one a complete picture of things, the gold, like the sun in the sky and the feces, like that stuff that's dark and earthy that you flush below. Um, but you need to see it all <laughs> in order to have a picture of reality as it, as it, appropriately is in order to act appropriately within it otherwise you're you're either mired in the mud and just think everything is terrible and you're depressed or you're you're spacey and floating away on your your mind cloud leaving your body and your life to fall into ruin sort of like a luna love good uh or love joy figure mm. um love good <laughs> yeah love good um yeah so i thought that was a so I'm very interested in that alchemical symbolism. And I, I, something the Jungians say is that most of the alchemists were charlatans and falsifiers. 
but a couple of them seem to understand the essence of it like that. And that's something very interesting. Wes, what do you think on that? Uh, yeah, I was trying to, I think, pick up on this, this topic with respect to um, Draco and whether he is redeemable. Was that sort of the gist of your question, Sarah? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. We haven't really seen him enough to know whether or not that is. But just that, like, you know, you've got... Ha- I, I just imagine I'm imagining the scene and they're both being measured for these giant black cloaks and they're both um, new. They're going to be new at something. Um, they're both alone um, and they're the same age. One of them has enormous amounts of knowledge or thinks he has a lot of knowledge about where he's going and what he's going to be learning and where he belongs. Yeah thinks that he knows who he is and what he deserves. And one of them at the end of the chapter, he says, you know, he says like, I have no idea how to do. And Harry says, I don't know how to do any of this. Um, And so, um, and yet they are made to look the same. And so Mm. if, if the educational experience is um, an opportunity for our protagonist to come to know himself and through, uh, you know, the educational process, if it's about, you know, if, if, if he's chosen by this magical wand, um, then so is, so is this nasty little boy, um, who, who, who he looks the same as, I mean, but for the colors of hair, um, and the glasses versus the lack of glasses, they are, um, uniform, literally. Um, so, yeah, does, yeah. I, I, that was, that was my question. I, I don't know that we've seen enough of of this character to know if he, you know, to know if, 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 if he's, if his core is, is incapable of transformation, you know, um, the way that I think that uh, just to, to pull along the, the, um, the, like the idea that education is the good kind of alchemy (laughs) um, and not the the con. You know, something interesting. um, And I know we were going off on just a branch for you, Wes, about the redemption of Malfoy. But um, it, the, the idea of them being in uniform there seems to be an equality of opportunity idea, right? Mm-hmm. That um, um, even though Draco comes from a rich wizarding family that has been in Slytherin forever and is pure blood and seems to have every advantage in terms of knowledge and wealth, um, <laughs> that even people like Hermione or uh, Harry's mother, Lily, who have no knowledge of the wizarding world, just like Harry... Uh, can also go there and can be put at the same starting line as all these wizards. And regardless of their family and what they have and what the tradition has given to them, it will be their actions by which they're judged um, in the world to come, in in the adult world or the world of university that leads into the adult world, the finishing school, the secondary school, whatever they call Hogwarts. (laughs) And yeah, Wes... Yeah, yeah. The the way that Hogwarts, we're told, is able to kind of encompass all of the um, the the Slytherins of the world, which we hear about a little bit here, and and also the Hufflepuffs of the world, uh, which we hear a little bit about from from again a very prejudiced point of view. But nevertheless, we get we get these kind of bits and pieces there, and yeah, it seems like there's a kind of uh, aspiration at Hogwarts that all that matters there is talent in some in some sense right like you can have all the different kind of personalities and backgrounds 
and be different in, in every respect. Um, but as long as you have the talent, uh, the potential or whatever that represents, then, then you're welcome there and you'll, you'll find people who will, um, you know, bring you into their house, you know, and, and you'll sort of belong. And that's such a huge thing for Harry where he's, you know, he has no idea, uh, only recently has learned that he has this potential, but he still doesn't really belong anywhere. Uh, and so he's, he's, he's got this, um, this kind of goal now in mind, at least. Uh, but we also see the, the negative side of that, right? Like, cause with that belonging can come this kind of clannishness, this ambition, this, uh, the dark side that the Slytherins seem prone to. Uh, we're probably reminded of the word Slytherin and the snake thing with Harry. So we might have that kind of on our mind now. And then of course we also see what happens to Hagrid where you, you can get expelled, right? Like this is not just like a guaranteed thing. You can, you can go wrong that way too, where whatever it was that Hagrid did or happened to him, he, he's, he's kicked out and yet still there's a kind of forgiveness there. So, so we sort of see the, start to see the, the whole picture of what Hogwarts uh, is about and, and what it has to do with potentially rede redemption or, or unfolding of people's potential at least. And I think that gets us back to what we were saying about like our investigation earlier about wands, which is that, I mean, the wand, the way each of the wands are described, um, it's like with um, language of action, like you could only know that Lily's wand was swishy by trying it. Um, he, right. Like, um, uh, you only know if the wand has chosen you by, by holding it and, and, and moving it about, um, raising it. Um, it, it's an, it's act activity that seems to, to really, um, start to identify or like, you know, individualize characters to Alex's point earlier about like, um, they have this equality of opportunity, but, that it's actions that will set people apart. I really, I think that that's an important part of, um, of, of what they're setting up in this world. Like, yeah, like in, even when um, all these characters are being described, um, like the goblins um, look kind of scary. Ollivander looks old and wise, but also super creepy um, that, you know, that our judgment of, what wand is good for you or who is a good person and who is somewhere in the middle isn't or can't be based upon simply how they look um, or what, you know, but, but what they do. Um, and so, I mean, maybe Ollivander, we can judge him as creepy because he is, you know, I, I don't know. When people have that kind of memory, I find that creepy. Like, oh, yeah, I remember you when you came into my store 35 years ago. Um, well, like, like yeah, that's like weird. Something creepy. He seems to get under the skin or see what lies beneath. <laughs> yeah. Some, something right. interesting so, about that is that with the wands, we also see that different strategies towards life and towards behavior can net the same results. Mm -hmm. So if Lily's sort of a figure of the feminine, well, she has a swishy or, in, or bendy wand she seems to be very agreeable and charming in personality she has the ability to uh focus um outward on that which she sees and manipulate it um in an emotional way whereas james has uh a a, a more forceful or transfiguring wand where he actually physically will transform the reality around himself in a non 
relational way. And uh, the reason I would say they are equally successful as strategies towards the world is that they both had the same child, right? Harry, and they both came to the same end. And so they're equally Mm -hmm. successful in, in that respect, though they have opposite ways of doing things. And so just to continue to, you know, ad, not advocate, but rather illustrate the point that we've been following along, that um, equality of opportunity, it's that the ways by which these wizards and, wi- and witches are successful in the world are so much more manifold than we could possibly even simply classify simply by looking at them or gendering them or something or, or like that, that all of the ways that we do categorize them, like putting them into a house or having a certain length of wand are just small, are not full encapsulations of the being of the wizards, but are rather small representative samples of, of what they truly are. I mean, obviously there's much more to Lily than the fact that she's, you know, like potentially uh, swishy and charming. Um, but the idea that she could have such an opposite way of interacting with the world and yet still be just as successful as somebody who actually explicitly transfigures it or changes it to bend to his will in, in the in the final analysis indicates that, yeah. that humans seem to have the most diversity of um, seem to be the most diverse possible creatures, not based on how we look or even the ideas we have in our heads, but the ways, but the manners of behavior we use the ideas driving those behaviors which lead to our ability to survive in the world and particularly the complex version of the world that we play in. We're not just like, you know, in caves or in trees. We, you know, are interacting via social media at this very moment <laughs> from several different states away. And so it's almost as if wands are of infinite variety because the idea is that humans, though we are one species and all connected, are also in, of infinite variety in terms of our our strategies for surviving in the world. Um, yeah. I don't know. I got kind of inspired there. <laughs> I took the wand and tapped it to my head. Uh, I, I think I'm, I'm following um, the idea that there's a kind of infinite variety makes sense uh, without more... Um, without more than what we've got so far, uh, again, I don't know that we have a clear picture of what what the good use of magic actually looks like. Uh, we, we, we definitely have seen a little bit about what, what can go wrong with magic in, in all these different ways. And we've seen something about its kind of nature as this uh, incredible potential and it can go in all these different directions and do all these different, all these different forms. Um, but I, I guess I'm curious if you guys have a sense yet of of what um, what magic is really supposed to be for. Uh, is it just a matter mm. of like gathering together money and hoarding it and keeping it safe? Uh, is it a matter of sort of just delighting in the possibilities that are out there and sort of seeing where they might go? Because um, that's sort of two images that we get in in Gringotts and in Cor- uh, sorry not Coral but uh, Ollivander. Um or is it? I, I mean, I guess my my sense is that we're supposed to sort of be waiting and holding our breath like Harry to see what what Hogwarts is all about and see what what that picture of of magic is supposed to look like. Um, but again, it's just, it's interesting to me that we're sort of 
we're kept from sort of seeing the goal of, of what this this is actually all for. And and I think education is really that way too. Um, you know, I never looked forward to going back to school. <laughs> no, I think I think that's a great question. I don't. I definitely don't have an answer. Uh, maybe it is tied to the fact that we aren't at the school yet. Um, but I mean, who are we kidding? I I did look forward to going back to school, but, um, uh, <laughs> but you know, how often, I don't know if you guys ever, well, shoot, we all went to St. John's. Didn't somebody ever ask you like, well, what's that good for, you know, huh. like, or what are you going to do with that? Um, or, you know, I, I always get that question from, you know, a student or two, a senior, like, well, you know, I need to major in something that's going to get me a job, right? So this idea that there is like a an end that's, um, you know, uh, finite or um, I, I think that's definitely a, 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 a thought about education. I don't know if it's just proper to the United States, but um, probably my guess is proper to like the entire industrialized West that like education is for um, uh, the labor market. Like we need to, we need to teach kids to be workers. Um, and maybe they're not just factory workers, but they're um, to be doctors and lawyers and engineers and et cetera, et cetera. But um, I think uh, learning as a me as an avenue towards employment is definitely like a, um, something that I, whenever we get to the point in these, in this series where they would do education, I always found that part, like, like, that's ridiculous. Like, like they should just stay in school and keep taking classes. Like, like the jobs seem so beneath all of the cool stuff that they're learning. Like what, a, <laughs> and, and let's be real, like being an adult sometimes sucks. Like I would totally rather to be in school and continue to take classes and learn and learn and learn. And sometimes like having a real, you know, big kid job is like, wow, like this is so such a derivative compared to like what I was learning in school. Um, and, and yet the purpose of school is to get me a job. I don't, I don't know. Um, it's interesting <laughs> because it's like, it's like we, we have stages of further encapsulation of our beings right? Like we start off with infinite potential. We can be anything. We're babies. And uh, then, then we start to grow and we have hair and we seem to have a certain color hair, <laughs> color eyes. And then we, we have a certain IQ and we move through the world in a certain way. And then, we, and then it's time for secondary school. And that's a further encapsulation, <laughs> right? Like, you know, are you going to, and depending on the country you're in. So if you're in German, you're, you know whether you're going to go be blue collar or white collar or what and then once you get out of school there's a further encapsulation or or even less of your being gets pulled into your job right like you're not jumping on monkey bars every day as well as like solving <laughs> doing chemistry probably unless you do crossman or a chemist um but um but it, it, it's as if the how the ma magic manifests in one's life the, the ways that one manifests it become more and more constrained, but also more and more sophisticated for that reason. So rather than being able to, say, produce every phoneme, 
as a baby can and everybody bewails that they're like what if i could still do that it's like you'd still not be good at speaking because you haven't practiced um but instead <laughs> say write like a wonderful writer or speak like an orator like a winston churchill or write like a jk rowling or you know maybe a virgil let's say that um and so you give up the breadth it seems of experience and of activities in order to get into the nuance and to master particular aspects of reality and so when I look at magic now, it is such a mystery at the beginning of this text. Everything is new. It's sort of like potential. Every, and Harry even says he wants eight eyes to see everything. And um, mm. so, that, so, that, so the experience of potential or of talent or of newness or anomaly can be that, right? That you, you don't understand it all or the end of it all, but you're just so interested in it. You're giving all your attention to it, almost autistically, uh, um, which is interesting because that seems to be uh, uh, a, a disease or not disease, but a condition that can come about due to increased exposure to testosterone during fetal stages, which means that you, autism is actually hyper being a boy, which means that you hyper focus on one thing and to the, ex, to the exclusion of others, which seems to also be the process of life. That we're going to go from the unknown with the magic here, which I'm paralleling with life, to knowing how it is going to manifest. And that's also why I think, and I agree with all of you, especially what you just said, Sarah, that going into education with the end in mind, thinking that you know the end and that it could be something as partially as simply having a job is, is not exactly the right mindset it, and, and, is, not, and mm -hmm. is incorrect because you have no idea who it is you are when you start your education. But ideally by the end of it, you have a better idea and thus can choose the profession mm -hmm. uh, most reflective of you. And hopefully there is one that sort of reflects you. I know all three of us have trouble with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I know we had a lot of audio uh, issues today, and but we'll figure out a way to resolve those. Do you, did you all have any final thoughts you wanted to end on before we embark off to the Hogwarts Express and finally get to Hogwarts in our next conversation. Did you have a question you wanted to ask about like uh, what we thought we would teach or? Yes, yeah, but uh, I kind of I kind of want to save that for the next recording in hopes that in the next recording we're 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 sailing smooth. Just because. Oh yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, um, and then right I now. think also also the uh, the question about like where we would sort. I think because I think what we're about to discoveries will have the sorting hat pretty soon and so um we can talk about that you know in the next go around okay so we'll talk about where we think we would be sorted i think we'll soon talk about um uh whether we identify more with the students or with the teachers now and also mm -hmm. also uh, what was the third one that we were just talking about what we would, what teach. We would teach uh yes we were texting about that and i think that'd be or, you know, and I guess we can invert that too and say what our favorite subjects might be while we were, while we were there. And I, I suppose, if we were, you know, and that's so funny because I'm even tempted to say, I suppose it would be teacher dependent, right? Because those Lupin and Mad-Eye Moody years would be good years to be in the defense of the dark arts. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. Well, um, let's, I yeah. did want to throw out one thing, uh, from the, um, the fairy stories reading. I don't know if you guys had a chance to look at that yet, but oh, yeah. uh, there, there is there is a link to it. Uh, 
that I think Sarah, you send out and you can Google that and find it easily like uh, for free online. It's, it's a long lecture. It sort of rambles all over the place. Uh, but <laughs> I have like a, I have a truncated version that I gave my students that I like cut out a lot of the. Uh, okay. <laughs> the no, no, I, no, I think it's, I think it's worth reading in its, yeah. in its entirety, but it is long. Um, but, but I just wanted to like, again, just like to jump to the, to, to one of the interesting things that he mentions there, he kind of coins this word, you catastrophe, mm. yeah. um, which is, which is, which he explains like what he means by that. And, and so if you just like find, you just like control F that word, you catastrophe, EU, and then so catastrophe, like, <laughs> like read, but bigger. Yeah. A yeah. I mean, so mountain, you, the mist, the lonely mountain. Well, it's, it's what he has to say about, the sense in which that is like the essence of of fairy story um mm -hmm. he means by it something like a, a happy ending actually uh yeah and but, he, he means like the that that moment in the story where it doesn't it doesn't deny suffering um but like the suffering is transformed into something sudden and joyful so like yeah the the, the turn the, the sudden turn. joyous turn yeah yeah, yeah. And, and I find it really interesting that what we get in this book uh, is kind of a series of the, like the book starts with mm. right? Harry lives and everyone's joyful. Um, but then also in these chapters where Hagrid comes in and bursts through the door and tells Harry, you're a wizard, you know? And then, so that's like a, that's a kind of little you catastrophe uh, there too. Yes. Cause it's like everything that you've dreamed about forever has finally come true, but it doesn't undo the sadness of mm -hmm. all those years. Right. And it's essential that it doesn't. No, and that somehow but that's it isn't. brought up yeah. into it is yeah. a total renovelization of experience and changes the structure of one's life too, which is interesting mm -hmm. because yeah. now he knows like there's a next part of his life and that was only one part and that's not his whole being but only one aspect of it. So it's like a you catastrophe. And I'll read the I'll read the essay so I can actually speak to this appropriately. It's a moment in which you have yeah. to re uh, think or an action happens which changes the course of your life, which also changes how you have to think about your life and thus think about what it is you are as a being. Because, of course, he learns he's a magical being. and He's got these roots that he didn't even know about. But, and this was always true, but he didn't know it was true. And so now it's time for him to reconceptualize everything. And, well, I suppose it's a good time to go get an education. <laughs> and, um, you know, just on, that, on the note of that essay, there's the other part of that essay that I think the, pat, the uh, chapters that we talked about and read for today um, uh, that's like really germane is the idea of recovery where he, yeah. Tolkien describes recovery as like a regaining of a clear view that the, the mm. thing that a fantasy story can give a reader is this, um, this uh, re newfound uh, cleansed appreciation for the ordinary. Um, because it is ennobled and made magical in the in this fantastical pr secondary world. So, for example, um, uh, books or um, a bank, the train, the train, the underground, um, right? Harry, yeah, it's like bemused by the things that used to seem ordinary. Now, after he's seen all this other stuff, he's like kind of stunned. And Hagrid's like, you know, are you okay? Like the parking meter, for example, that Hagrid doesn't understand, or um, the uh, a broomstick, something that Harry certainly. I mean, he he lived in a in a closet, um, and broomsticks would be, uh, you know, just a memory of something 
past, but now it's this thing that, that every kid wants right. because, is a broomstick. Um, because they live in yeah. worlds where the functions of objects are totally different. Yeah. And, and that, and Tolkien says that that is what, that is one of the things that a, a fantasy story can give a reader is this, um, uh, it's a, it's a gift for when you close the book. It's not, it's not something that you almost experience as you're reading it, but that when, when I go outside and I look at a brick wall and I think to myself, wouldn't it be cool if I were to tap three up and two across and boom, I get a portal and a new like magical world. Like it, it transforms this, the, like the ordinary brick wall that you walk by every day to get to the bus. So it's precisely right? like um, the Mino and that when we find that the world is much larger than we expected to be, and perhaps we are much larger than we expected ourselves to be, when we're confronted with that, with that which we do not know or understand, things become renovelized, and again, our interest and our attention is grasped. Mm-hmm. And we are. And I think this, this, I mean, this book series, for example, is a great meta example of what she's doing on the page. That, like, for so many people, this is the book that recovers reading um, or um, imagination for a lot of people. I mean we're talking about it for 70 minutes for God's sake. So, um, anyway, <laughs> well, hopefully we can renovelize some people's experiences as well, because, you know, what is the mundane, but that which you no longer see. And, uh, right. Well, so y'all shall we do this again on chapters six and seven? Do those sound good? Six, seven, eight, six, and seven was pretty long. Okay. <laughs> Six and seven sounds sorting good. hat in, or excuse me, yeah, the journey from platform nine and three quarters in the sorting hat. And so it looks like we'll just then get into Hogwarts. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. and meet, <laughs> meet the uh my 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 two soon mentioned Ron Weasley friend. Harry's rather. <laughs> um all right, well, y'all. Um we we have to come up with some sort of <laughs> spell to say at the end of this but i suppose the spell i'll say to y'all today will be goodbye (laughs) (laughs) all right we'll see you we'll talk to you later all right see you soon